Hello, everybody. Hey, glad you all appeared bright and early here this morning to hear us ramble about entrepreneurship. But this panel, my name is Ben Parr. I'm the former editor-at-large of Mashable. Um, this panel is not about me. It's about these amazing panelists, these people who are deeply embedded into the entrepreneurial space. And we're going to just have a very general discussion about entrepreneurship, um, and especially as it relates to music and technology and the challenges they face, the what they think are going to be the major trends and their advice for the entrepreneurs in the room. Just real quick raise of hands. How many of you are entrepreneurs? Yeah, and then, uh, okay, that's pretty much half the audience. Although I'm actually surprised. There's a lot, it looks like there's a lot of others in different industries. In any case, I'm going to allow the panelists to introduce themselves briefly. And about half of this will be questions. So start thinking about the questions you want to ask them now. Uh, my name is Brendan Mulligan. I started out in the traditional music industry working for a label and management company and then transitioned into tech by starting Artist Data, which was a syndication tool for bands. And then I'm currently working on a project called OneSheet, which is basically an online identity for bands. Just a, it's called just a project? <laughs> it's a project. <laughs> I'm Ian um, Hogarth. Uh, I started out in machine learning, uh, not in the music industry, and uh, I run and founded Songkick, which helps people go to more concerts. I'm uh, Nick Panama. I started a record label called Cantor Records about seven years ago, grew it as an indie label, and then uh, last year, my partners and I were kind of sitting around saying, you know what, there's a big opportunity here to bring insider access, the music industry, to the tech world, and we've started a new division called Cantor Labs, where we invest in early stage entertainment startups with real insider resources. Hi, I'm Eric Ferraro. I'm uh, an emerging companies and venture capital lawyer. Um, represent companies across the tech spectrum, but I have a sub-specialty in music and entertainment technology. Uh, I'm a founder of Iris, which is uh, one of the largest independent digital distributors. Um, I've also built and uh, sold law firm. So having worked with entrepreneurs and having uh, founded and exited from a couple of companies, uh, Looking forward to talking about entrepreneurialism. Remind, quick disclosure, he's actually my lawyer. Um, but I, that doesn't mean I'm going to be any easier on him than anybody else. Uh, before we get started, I... And, and Brian didn't even know that. We're all about transparency here. <laughs> Good timing. Uh, to get started before there, I have to ask, what did you all think of the Grammys? <laughs> I didn't even watch them. <laughs> you didn't wa you don't, are they relevant? Does it matter? Someone, anyone watch them? Was that like that Twitter thing? <laughs> <laughs> I heard they were good. I heard that it was a good show. Wait, what do you mean by the organization, not the... Paris is relevant. The awards are not. Ah, fair enough. Let's get started by talking a little bit about some, some of your experiences, I guess. Yes, uh, a quick little bit about the front lines, yes. Just talk a little bit about what, what, what kind of uh, challenges did you face before you were, like, especially for, the, I guess you're all founders, the biggest difference that you learned when you became a founder of a company before when you were an employee? Going from a, like a, being an assistant at a record label to founding a company was a, like kind of a, a huge change. But I think the, the more significant part of it when I did it was, that was in like 2007, and the reception from labels and management companies to technology was really, really difficult at that point, which I think has probably changed over time, or has changed over time, but um, 
when I when I first started Artist Data, people just had they didn't want their they were very protective of their content. They didn't want it anywhere else. They didn't really understand what all the social networks were, and they didn't know why they should have their content on it. And it was it was the argument to convince them to even try to use something new was the biggest challenge. I think I think that's changed significantly now. But it went from sort of being oh I'm I'm like on your side representing you and trying to help you grow to. I'm still, I knew I was still doing that, but the reception was that I was doing, I was trying to take control of content that wasn't mine. Uh, I think for me, it's about sort of the, the gulf between the, the reason you're doing your, your startup and something you kind of know to be true and the actual kind of product instantiation that, that delivers on that. So I've never really had any doubt in my mind that people should go to more live music and the world would be a better place if that happened and that most people actually want to see more shows than they do but figuring out what the right product is to make that happen at a mainstream level you know it's, it's felt like the, the sort of the most interesting and complex challenge of being a founder sort of translating that <coughs> gut knowledge into the right product um, that will scale into the market so you know for, for us we we were a traditional music company in a time when uh, you know, everyone was kind of suffering, and I think the biggest challenge for us was saying, wait a minute, we have to extend the perimeter of what our business can be and what we can do with what we have. Um, and I think we face that probably every day is just trying to live outside of our comfort zones, uh, and especially in music where it can be very easy to stay within those limitations. Um, I think that's sort of a big challenge for us and, and something that uh, is equally exciting as it is scary. Well, I mean, it, the question as it pertains to entrepreneurship is, you know, what's the experience in going from being an employee or, you know, an, a participant in an organization to starting your own? And uh, something that I, you know, deal with all the time, both in connection with my clients and myself. And, you know, I mean, obviously the, the beauty of starting a business is the idea to control the vision and to ideally control the implementation of that vision. Um, but the challenge is that when you start a business, you realize just how many things that there are to do. Uh, and, you know, I, I find that a lot of the people that I work with, you know, sometimes have a little bit of a shock. Um, at just, it's not only about the core business model and the vision, but, you know, all of, all of the logistics around running a business. And so it can be a very difficult transition to make, and you really have to take a hard look at who you are and whether you're the, the right person to not only drive the particular business model and the particular vision, but can you run an organization, can you build a business? Uh, it's a, it's a, there's a lot to it. Um, I'm curious for you all, you were, you were talking about a little bit about um, how you started machine learning and somehow like end up in the music industry, just for all of you, what, what interested you about music? Why are you in... Uh, doing entrepreneurship in the music industry and related question, is it a good industry right now to be an entrepreneur in, uh, given issues like the record labels, the, uh, the uh, issues with streaming rights, um, the Hollywood thing, all of that? Why don't we start this side? <laughs> uh, it's a big question. Uh, so I, I would imagine that most of us are involved in the music side of entrepreneurialism because we love music and that's probably a, a theme that runs through this audience uh, and certainly this conference you know for myself many many years ago I was an entertainment lawyer and realized that 
San Francisco Bay Area just really wasn't a, a vital enough space to run a traditional entertainment law practice. There's just not enough talent here, um, or at least uh, talent making a lot of money. But a decade ago, when the digital media industry first really took root, all of a sudden we had a very fertile um, arena in which to practice entertainment law coupled with technology law. And so that's been really interesting for, for me. Um, is music a good industry to be yeah. an entrepreneur in right now? So I think right now, for the, maybe for the first time since I've been involved in the music technology space, it is really starting to show signs of long-term viability. From my perspective, um, a, a lot of times we look at the technology space in terms of our venture investors willing to put money into it. And investors have shied away from the music technology space for almost the entire history that there has been a music technology space. And I think we've all seen what happened with digital media generally, even though it has disintermediated the, the music scene completely. It hasn't uh, really resulted in the dollars that anybody would have expected because the strength of the peer-to-peer um, you know, dynamics are still so strong and because of the, the, you know, the breakdown of the album sale into track-by-track -track sales. Um, the, the download model being superseded by you know, streaming and other ad revenue-based models. Uh, but with all of that that has taken place, which I think has you know, made investors very wary about the space, in the last couple of years, we've really seen a bit of a sea change, I think. And there are more venture funds that are popping up that are de dedicated expressly to music technology plays. Uh, and I do think that finally we've gotten over some of the early jitters in the space, and this is a real fertile um, space right now. And because San Francisco Bay Area is still the, the clear leader in the space, I think it's a great place to be and a great sector to be in. Yeah, I think this is the most exciting time to be in, in music tech. Uh, God damn it, we've needed it in the music industry for forever. And I think more than anything, you, you see music as this medium that permeates everything, right? And I think a lot of investors, I think a lot of people inside the industry, um, I think just music consumers in general are starting to understand, wait a minute, you know, music can be this beautiful beta ground to test cool consumer behavior, a new way to experience digital content or even physical content, right, events. Um, and that's something that can then grow into other areas of entertainment. And um, we all know, I think Hollywood is probably coming next. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. That's why I get up every day, you know, because I think that there's a, a great opportunity right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo the enthusiasm. I think, um, I think there are two, two broader, bigger vectors that are going to drive a lot of really exciting things in the next year or two in, in, in music. The first is, is that, you know, kind of access to music is going to go through a step change. I mean, people have been talking about the idea of streaming music services, getting to mainstream levels um, for 10 years, and this is the year they will do. I mean, what Spotify and Audio and others are doing um, is going to take that market to tens, tens of millions of, of users, um, hundreds of millions of users within, I think, the next year. And that has real downstream implications for anyone involved in any other area of music. I mean, we we're a, we were a launch partner for Spotify's new platform, and you know that that's a pretty awesome opportunity to get uh, live music in front of many many more consumers. I think the other disrupting vector is is 
the funding models for music, uh, you know, the stuff that's been going, going down on Kickstarter for the past few years seems like it's really getting to a, uh, a level of kind of escape velocity. And I think that that will have massive downstream implications because essentially you've got creative works being financed by the people, you know, and that, and that feels like it's going to usher in a new kind of a new, a new platform for, for building, building music. I agree. <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I think that the, the biggest thing for me is that, and I sort of alluded to this with the last question, is that the, the, I think the music industry is open to technology companies coming in and helping. And that's something that I have not seen as much up to, up to this point as it is now. And I think that's going to be a huge, a huge change. Because you actually have people at labels, at management companies, and these people who are like really, really focused on what's happening and trying to take advantage of these new platforms as opposed to how it was before where it was <coughs> trying to shut them all down. Yeah. So. so related topic, and uh, unfortunately I do have to bring it up because uh, we, it's, not, it's the only thing we talked about for about three weeks earlier this year. That would be the... Uh, SOPA controversy and the uh, Kill, Kill Hollywood call from Y Combinator, which was the Y Combinator seed firm, which is asking like startups, getting startups into Kill Hollywood. What do you think of the entire fair? Um, is, is there a middle ground on this? Uh, what should both sides be doing? Anyone can jump in on this one. Well, I mean, I'll just, I'll say that I think that the motivations or some of the motivations are right, but they're not really packaged in the right way. And I think that everyone wants to protect content and everyone wants to make sure that people aren't stealing content. I think there are ways to do it that are, n are less drastic than the ways that have been proposed. And I'm sure over the next year or two, like, we'll figure out the better way to do it. I think I'm kind of intrigued about the, the characteristics of the entrepreneurs and the startups that are going to disrupt um, Hollywood, if you like. And I think, you know, to me, it's very telling that, that Kickstarter is in New York, that Etsy is in New York. Um, that Ian Rogers is in LA, in LA. I think that there's there's something to be said for people who have that sort of split personality where on one side they can really understand how create amazing consumer experiences on the web and at the other end of the spectrum they can understand how crazy artists are and um, understand how the creative process is a complex thing and how you how you kind of get involved in that the right way and I think that something like Kickstarter or Etsy or um, some of the things that Ian's written about the subject of sort of SOPA and PIPA really kind of to me get at the, the idea that the the entrepreneurs who are going to do the coolest stuff uh, in, in disrupting sort of existing Hollywood structures or studios or, or labels or whatever are going to be coming at it with that holistic point of view where they see both what the consumer wants you know a la, a la Netflix and what a an amazing creative person needs to fulfill their vision. I mean, I, I think we probably all, if we've paid attention to the, the whole SOPA debate, would agree that, generally speaking, we need, we need to you know, do more with our copyright laws, both in terms of protecting content, but also in recognizing that protecting content because it is the single monetizable unit uh, is a mistake. You know, and I think that one of the things that's happened in the music industry, and maybe the, the more interesting discussion point for this panel, is that if you're going to be innovating around music technology or entertainment technology, my advice would be don't look at the content as the thing that needs to be monetized necessarily. You know, and this has been a big, this has been a big tension between innovation and the existing status quo for a long time, is that 
Hollywood or the major labels have viewed the content as the only thing that deserves protection. And I think that what we're seeing now in the industry is that, especially with music, maybe not, not quite yet so much in the Hollywood sort of film space, but with music, music is a baseline you know, fundamental need, like air, water, food, sex. And you can't necessarily music. just <laughs> monetize the music. You've got to be able to build innovation and entrepreneurship and businesses around music that can derive value from other than just selling it. And this is the fundamental flaw with the SOPA legislation is that it's not progressive in that respect. It just looks at the content as the only thing that deserves protection. So we have to innovate around the music. I, I was going to disagree with the music section, and I thought, what would happen if I went three months without music and I think I would be even more mad than if I had gone three months without sex anyway. Uh, <laughs> and any can, we just, can we just pause? <laughs> pause, let that sink in for a moment. Uh, we're gonna go to questions very soon, but uh, just a little bit on the advice side. Um, just, uh, just quickly, um, how many of you work B2C companies? Business to consumer, raise your hand. B2B companies? Something, you don't have any fucking clue? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so we'll, just curious about your thoughts on, let's, let's talk a little bit about like, uh, on getting traction for your sharp idea, especially if you're like early stage, like getting those initiatives, getting them like to fall in love, getting those people to actually get in. Um, what would be like a piece of advice you would give the room on uh, getting that traction that you need to really turn that into a big business? I think you need to, uh, might be a little cliche, but I think you need to measure, just have really, really good analytics and measure everything and make sure you know what's happening when people use the product because you can get as many big articles on blog, you know, news and music blogs. You can do everything. You can make it as pretty as you want, but ultimately if it isn't something of value that people actually are using and getting, getting some sort of value out of, they're just not going to come back. And the best thing you can do is build something where as people come back, they tell their friends and the whole thing just sort of grows organically. And then when you put marketing dollars and things like that behind it, it's a lot more effective. So I would focus a lot less on who's going to do the first write-up and how many conferences you're going you're gonna to go and speak at and all that and really focus on does the product provide real value to the people that we're building it for. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that, and um, yes. and I, I think, I, and I think maybe a, a, just sort of make it a bit more uh, practical. I think I would say focus on the first like couple of minutes of the product experience that a new user has your product, and use that as kind of a lens to to figure out what you need to improve and how you need to get it closer. And you kind of need to ma maintain. It's, I sort of referred to it at the start, but you have to maintain this kind of dissonance between really, really knowing in your gut that something needs to exist and being completely open-minded about what exactly it will look like to fulfill that. So, I mean, we've been through loads of variations on Songkick, and some of them have been complete failures, and some of them have been really good. And now we're like the second largest concert site in the world, with you know millions of people using our service and getting millions of people to more shows. And I think um, you know it's all about that, like okay, this user signed up, they didn't find a new concert to go to, what did we do wrong? Okay, this user signed up, they went to five new concerts, what did we do right? And really just getting really obsessive about that first, um, that first few minutes or first few seconds um, until you finally kind of find, find a, a, mode of, a, a mode of use that really works. Yeah, I, I, since you agreed with me, I'll come back and say I totally agree with what Ian just said. <laughs> it's a love fest here, where's the fighting? Yeah. We want some fighting. But I think you're wrong. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, with one sheet, the the number one goal I think when I built the whole thing, 50% of the time building it was for the goal of 
making an artist be able to build a page within two minutes. That was it. There was no, the, no other goal was more important than that because if they could do that, then they could immediately get value out of it. So I totally agree. And like making a very, very hard metric like that or how many shows they can discover within the first five minutes, how many shows are they clicking on, like figuring out what those metrics are and really, really spending more of your time on that, not worrying about like the settings page or what the logout page looks like or how many animated GIFs are on the 404 page, like really focused on that first few minutes. From, uh, from marketing bands, you know, something that I've learned just from looking at the startup community and looking at tech companies and how they break, and I, I wish that more record labels and traditional music companies adopted this, which is just push the button and just go for it. You know, too often I'm sitting in the room with managers or I'm listening to other labels, I'm listening to publishers, listening to the artists, and they want this six to nine month plan, and they want to start working on things four months before a street date, and they want everything planned in detail and meticulous. And most of the time, the best, th the best artists and the most exciting acts are the ones where they just do it, you know? And that's what tech companies do. That's what tech products do. They just hit the button and they start and they put the damn thing out there and people like it and enjoy it and they get feedback and they make quick iterations. And I think for music companies, <clears throat> for managers, for artists, for any type of creative person, that is such a uh, powerful approach to just do it and just get out there. So you're basically saying that all the music industry should look to Lil B as their uh... Seriously, seriously, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, but look at that guy, he's got millions of hits, it's huge. And he just does it. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll just add a slightly different perspective, you know, wearing my, wearing my venture capital lawyer hat, right? We're always <laughs> looking at how are we gonna make sure that, you know, after you push the button, somebody's gonna put money into this business. And, you, you know, you could talk about this all day long, but the, the keys to a successful entrepreneurial startup are a compelling and intuitive user experience coupled with a very significant addressable market and a business model that has a revenue you know uh, scheme in there that makes some sense people are willing to pay for the service or they're willing to support it through ads or something else okay if you can if you can hit those three benchmarks great ux big market some sort of sensible revenue play then you've got a real chance to build a business that has life all right before, one last question before we go to uh the audience. You only get two sentences to answer this question, so we keep it short. It is, um, what, do you, what do you think is the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make when designing and developing products? And you get two sentences. Who wants to be the first volunteer? Too pretty, not useful. I gave him a tough one. I think I'm going to let them stew on that one. Re repeat the question. It is, the biggest mistake entrepreneurs, make, an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs typically make when designing and developing products? Well, it's just sort of the flip side of the, my last comment, which is, you know, focus only on, you know, to, to Brendan's point, only on the user experience. It's, it's beautiful, you know, it's whimsical, it appeals to the founder, but maybe only to a very small subset of the market out there. Or... That two sentences. Oh, yeah, sorry. So two <laughs> sentences. Yeah, there you go. Something like huge vision, first tiny step, something like that about combining the two of them I, I, all that fake Grimlock shit if you read that like follow that dude on Twitter like he, he says it in, in a few sentences I'd say building a platform uh, instead of a product alrighty audience uh, just raise your hand and let's do a couple of questions over here whatever you want to ask and, and, and introduce you what's your name uh, Jonathan. hi Jonathan um, we got oh, we got a microphone 
Um, from the analytics data mining, um, particularly from an in infrastructure perspective, are there um, things that uh, entrants <coughs> in that space can do in the music business um, that other analytics companies and other databases just aren't taken care of? Are there still big problems that are left unaddressed that are critical? From a label perspective, I know that I would love to see analytics that you can put up against um, a timeline of when content hits. You know, and I'd, I'd love to see, <clears throat> I'd like to see the pro be able to dial in analytics down to minutes, hours, or a week, right? Uh, I was at, for instance, I'll give you a really, really good example. So I was at Top Simpin last week, and they told me the statistic, which I thought was really cool, is that they don't care when they sit down with an artist like Lady Gaga, they don't care who or how many followers they have. They just want to know how many they've had in the last 60 days, you know? And seeing traction of, of, of repeat customers that you have in 60 days would be awesome. You know, I, I think that's really powerful. I think on the analytics side, the, the, maybe what's left to be conquered is really capturing true data for non-mainstream content. I mean, we've got a lot of entrenched players in the big data space, you know, from, from Nielsen to, you know, Big Champagne. But the the true indie content, the peer-to-peer -peer content, nobody is really capturing that data well. So I think that's the next frontier for big data in music is the the indie peer-to-peer -peer space. I think that, um, I mean, so I, I, I guess I have a slightly jaded perspective on that one, um, which is, I kind of think that the role of uh, of sort of machine learning, big data, that kind of stuff is a secondary one in in sort of really disruptive products. I think that it's a necessary second one, right? I mean, things like uh, the Netflix prize, right? Um, are a great example of kind of how machine learning and all sorts of hardcore algorithmic <laughs> stuff can can sort of take a great idea further, but that great idea kind of already has to exist. You know, like if you look at Kickstarter, it's just a really freaking simple site, right? At this point, they could probably do some really cool stuff on top of that using kind of big data, machine learning, whatever else, but you have to have that initial mousetrap that captures some interesting new data that you can do like cool like algorithmic stuff on. And I think that the kind of, the, I, I read some machine learning paper a while back where they just said like ultimately the data set trumps the algorithm. Right, and so you know your your primary job needs to be building a unique and interesting data set, like Twitter have done, and then thinking about how you apply interesting algorithmic techniques to it. So I think it's more appropriate for that stuff to be used as a sort of uh, as a, like a, a a kind of a, a subset of a much bigger product. Right. Next question, and I'll remind our panelists we have a lot of questions to go through. So short answers, please. Short questions, ah, and two. Tess Taylor from the National Association of Record Industry Professionals, hello. Um, Two-part question, very short. What analytics software are you using? Google Analytics, is it custom-built, open source? What is it exactly? And what types of data are you gathering? What do you do with it? Other than the hard data, uh, as in some of you I know have subscribers, what do you do with this data once you collect it to build and improve your business? Um, with OneSheet, we use Google Analytics. It's great. Um, the data that we collect is simple things like page views and uh, and how many clicks and where the clicks are happening on people's OneSheets. And then we are planning on, over the next six months, we'll be sort of returning that data back to the community and helping, as entertainment professionals are building these pages, helping them with best practices based primarily on data and what we're seeing across the other, all the pages in particular. 
So we can say you, you know, having a video is, is stronger than having a, an audio, having a video in the top right is stronger than having audio in the bottom left or whatever. So. So we use we use Google Analytics as well, a bunch of bunch of other sort of small analytics products on the side, but that's the main one. And I think uh, there's sort of no one right answer to this. I think it's more important to figure out what you want to measure and then figure out the right tool to measure it. Um, for us, for example, it, you know, it really goes down to are we getting people into more concerts than they were going to before? And so whatever tool will help us answer that question, the better. I mean, things like chart beat are actually really awesome when you want to know kind of real time how one's, how someone's first experience with your your product is working. You can use surveying tools like Kiss Insights. I think maybe the best way to maybe solve that problem for you is just to say, you know, here are the three questions I really want to answer and then just talk to someone who knows about a bunch of analytics products and see, see which one they recommend for you. All right, let's the next question. Kerry Rose, uh, a couple questions and challenge these assumptions, but given that A, maybe the song or the content and the music is now the lost leader, right? Uh, and that the disaggregation of the album has created this sort of, you know, it's more of a marketing tool. Where do you folks see a genuine opportunity? And by that, I mean like the value opportunity, you know, where can you monetize and, and what, what other places do you see where we can create something that's worth monetizing? And I also mean, given that most of the money comes from a very small percentage of big artists in the industry. Where do you see that opportunity in the sort of 99% uh, of the rest of the industry? The monetization question. Yes. Uh, live music. Um, so, uh, um, of course. <laughs> Whoa. Got a bit of a bet going on there. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but to your point about uh, like uh, the head and the tail, we once some really data, interesting data we've seen is that um, the head is less and less relevant when it comes to live music. So, um, you know, the, the only truly tracked data on, on grosses uh, for concerts is done by Polestar. And if you look at the top 100 tours, uh, they used to make up 90% of the money in, in the live music industry and ticket sales. And over the course of 10 years, they declined to kind of below 50, 60%. Um, so, and, that, and I think that trend is going to accelerate. Um, and you know, you guys know this, like think about the last five concerts you went to and whether those were massive acts or tiny acts, you know, the, the balance is shifting. Um, so to me that that's actually the really exciting trend in live is the, is, is, uh, the fact that, that people are going to see more and more artists and they're being more, um, more discriminating about where they see them. I mean, when it comes to a music technology company, you got, you got to start with what, where are you coming from? I mean, do you want to be a listening experience? You know, do you want to be the next, you know, turntable or Spotify or RDO or I mean, are you trying to build a service? Because they are they are real and viable. Okay, I mean, the the ad supported model works. It's starting to get better. Uh, you can build, you know, you can build a viable business around a listening experience. There are lots of uh, opportunities, I think, to build real companies around analytics. Maybe not so much data from a usage perspective, but you know, algorithmic um, infrastructures that will sort of break down music into its constituent parts and make it more, you know, available, whether it's for sync or for app development, you know, look at what like the Echo Nest has done with their platform, you know, very, very, you know, I think a very good example of what you can do with sort of a, you know, a, an algorithmic approach to it. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Right over here. Hi, I'm Moses Shriola. Um This sort of follows from the question about protecting content. There was like a recent article in Pando Daily about how media platforms devalue content, not because they're not monetizing the content, but because they sort of equate all content, good and terrible. Um, so I guess the question is how to think about 
how to think about uh, striking the balance between scaling and access versus curation. So, so just trying to clarify the question a little bit. So, um, scaling versus so like like the 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 issues like all content's being treated equal, but all content really isn't equal. Right. Exactly. And so, how do you make it so that? How do, how do you make it that? so people have exactly people have access to all the content that's out there, but you sort of, you know, strike you, that balance and curate it for them as well? I think the uh, there's sort of multiple different approaches to this. One one that I found really interesting recently is um, the editorial apps in Spotify. I don't know if you guys have played with them, but there's something quite interesting going on. I mean, Audio have done this a, a nice job of this as well with their uh, with their kind of following sort of influential people thing. Um, <clears throat> but the way the thing that Spotify have done is. Um, is they've sort of brought Pitchfork in there. So you've got this very, very strong editorial voice that, that you know I trust to find a lot of new music um, that's now embedded within the experience of every piece of music or every piece of music that someone's going license to them, license to them. Um, and that, that, that struck a chord when I saw it. It kind of felt like a very interesting kind of nexus of the two. So I think they, they can be combined and it's about sort of smart platform design to allow them to be combined. I mean, I guess I would just quickly say to that that the idea about whether content is all created equal or not is one that's very hard to answer, right? Right now, in given our our current, you know, our current ecosystem, content that is objectively more valuable because of more, you know, more plays, more listens, more downloads, more purchases. A lot of that is driven by the, you know, the legacy system that we have. We've got major labels that are, you know, supporting this content. It's not necessarily or objectively better, but we view it as better because more people are listening to it. You know, the influencers on RDO are still, they still have it on their playlists. And, you know, so until that whole ecosystem is disintermediated, which it is becoming by the new technology companies that are coming out, that's a hard one to, to say. And I think that it's interesting to me, the, the businesses that are built around the idea that content is more or less equal, I think is more interesting to me. I'm just going to put a quick note on that one. Um, Apple's a big part of that conversation. You think before when they had every song was 99 cents, and then they switched it where so the, the hotter songs, they put a what, 20 30% markup on those songs. Uh, they're, 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 it's so early, they're still trying to find that balance is my suspicion. <coughs> Who else? Questions? No more questions? There, there. We got one over here, and then we'll do this one. Hi, uh, Ben Rapley. I work with Live Nation in Hollywood. The Hollywood that you guys are talking about, I guess. <laughs> Hollywood? Um, What's Hollywood? Yeah. Um, I have a question primarily for Brendan and Nick, but anybody else who has a perspective. You know, we work obviously in live entertainment and curious with your business model, what artist needs do you feel like you're serving? Or what is the motivation for your site? Um, to provide services to artists, specifically developing artists mo more interested in? Well, I mean, the motivation behind OneSheet was we people would come to conferences like this and everyone would say, don't rely on MySpace, don't rely on Facebook, don't rely on Twitter, have your own website, collect email addresses, do it on your own, and which I totally agree with. Like, relying on those services is a mistake if you rely on them 100%. The problem is those artists would leave conferences like this or any of the other ones and they have to go figure out how to do that. And there's some great services that can help them with that, but they didn't, if some of them are more expensive than they want, some of them are more complicated. And so the primary objective for OneSheet was allowing someone to go from having, having a domain name that forwards to Facebook or MySpace to 
building a very branded, very simple, and very clean website that they don't have to maintain because the content's being pulled in other places. So that's that's the the goal of it. I mean, it's going to get there's going to be a lot more that we're going to do with that, but that's the primary value that was intended to with the initial product. And I think our value is actually at this point. I mean, we build brands, right? We just don't monetize an artist or you know put a put a band in a studio. That's about one percent of what I do. It's really navigating the tools that the artist and label has available. So like telling them, you know, let's use one sheet for this or let's use this platform for something else. So I think and uh, much of our job is, is in, in a sense curation of, you know, what kind of digital tools we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Uh, we had a question over here. Thanks. I'm Natalia Garcia. Um, this is sort of a more basic entrepreneurial question. You guys mentioned how your advice would be to focus on the analytics and strictly the product itself and the experience before looking into any kind of full-fledged marketing PR strategy. At what point did you feel comfortable with sort of investing more fully in that side of the business? I'm still not comfortable with one sheet. I think we still there's still more to learn and still things to uh, things to understand about how the product's being used before it's worth putting uh, an investment into sort of a campaign, but we just hired our first person to focus on marketing and, and that aspect to start prepping for when we are ready for that. But I think you really have to, I mean, I think the, the phrase product market fit is used in different ways, but I just feel like you have to have a clear idea that this that's, it's the right product to go and spend a lot of money promoting. What's relate, just related question. Um, um, on getting that press attention, how valuable is that actually, um, and what's the best way to go about actually like getting the press to talk about you? I think you, if you build something simple that makes sense very very quickly, it's that's a lot easier because it's a lot easier to relate what you're doing to someone who's never heard of it before, um, and then building something with some clear value, and then it comes down to like you know obviously if you have done stuff before and you have attention or you already know a lot of the press, or you know the channels, then it's easier to get into those those places. But ultimately, for in my experience, it like if you look at the Google Analytics around OneSheet when they're big press days, it's a really, really big impressive spike, and then a really, really big downfall, and then it just kind of keeps going the way it was before. I mean, it lasts for a few weeks, and hopefully you've, you've like tilted the slope a little bit because more people are, you're just kind of helping the cycle um, repeat itself a little bit more, but... It's good. It's just not amazing. And a lot of people get so wrapped up, and I need my. I got half the launch on TechCrunch, and ultimately, it's great for a few days, and then it sort of goes away. Um, long term, like thinking about marketing, and, and less of like a, I'm going to get press this week, as more as like how can I make my product market itself. I think those are the more useful ways to go about marketing and PR. Yeah, I think that, um, there are sort of more efficient ways to get new users <clears throat> than PR. Generally, unless you have some product that is incredibly PR-tastic. Um, I'm going to use that verb from now on, PR-tastic. <laughs> like, uh, like, like, uh, like Brenda said around kind of having the, uh, the, the, the product sort of sell itself or, you know, viral techniques or whatever else, um, API, uh, you know, distribution through your API, et cetera. But I think that the, for me, the most valuable uh, reason to build strong relationships with journalists is you can sort of tell the story around your product. And that's sort of, you know, that, that won't necessarily acquire you 100,000 users in a day, um, 
but it will let people figure out whether they really believe in what you're doing kind of above and beyond the, the, the experience they've had with it so far and kind of get a sense of where it could go. And I think that, for example, um, someone like Dennis Crowley's done a really phenomenal job with that, with Foursquare for me. I feel like, you know, I was sort of, you know, just sort of figuring out whether I, I felt like I was going to be using Foursquare more this year or less this year. And then I read, a, uh, you know, an interview he did with someone where he started talking about kind of where they wanted to take it by the end of the year. And I was like, I'm going to keep using it because I'm really excited to see if, if the things he's talking about kind of um, play out the way they do and if my usage is, is improves as a result. So I, I look at it less as an acquisition vehicle and look at it more as an opportunity to sort of get people excited about your longer term vision for your business. All right, question. So I think your questions, we only have about 10 more minutes for questions. So uh, I guess this is mostly to Ian and Nick. Um, how would you guys, how do you guys measure engagement? We've talked a lot about analytics. We've talked a lot about uh, acquiring new users, but how do you actually manage or, or measure engagement when you're talking about live uh, versus when you're talking about downloaded, for instance? That's a great question. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, um, one of the analytics I'd love to see is, is how many the conversion rate, right, from people who go from that first moment of truth, that first point of consumption, right, to a second and a third and how they get there. Um, I'm not sure if that exists. If it does exist, if there's a startup that does that, please tell me. Um, what's that? All right, sick. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but how do we measure it? You know, I mean, for bands, it's simple. They go, they tour, and they, they hit the same venue in Ohio three times over the course of two months, and they've got more fans, right? Um, for us as, as a label on the back end, it's really hard for us to find that out. And we sometimes we kind of live in this, but we have to live in this bubble where we just don't know. And we just kind of keep going and, and hope that, you know, people are spreading the word. So I would imagine that your perspective is different, that you can connect. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, going back to that whole kill Hollywood thing, um, I've been thinking about what to say about it for a while. I feel like I'm trying to grow Hollywood, um, just a slightly different point of view. But you know, and the Hollywood I'm really thinking about is like the artists and um, managers who are just you know want to play more shows and want to have more people at their shows. And the you know the 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 point of of kind of leverage I think there is in the market is that fans really want to go to more, more live music than they do. You know, when you talk to the average fan, they really want to see more shows. They just, up until now, the industry's made it relatively difficult to do that. Um, so, the and the tool that I've found most helpful to to measure the level of impact we're having there is actually pretty old school. It's surveying. Um, you know, the KISS, the KISS metric survey tools are pretty nice, but it's a pretty basic thing, right? You can use SurveyMonkey or whatever else. And just to sort of construct questions that that, you know, with a, with a large enough user base, pull out some data. So we know that the average Songkick user goes to 70% more concerts the year after they start using our product. Um, and we're looking to make that kind of 3x or 4x over time, the number of concerts they go to. And, and so that's, that's how we track it. Um, you know, I think you, maybe you could do that with analytics as well, but I think it's a little bit more of a... It's a little bit more human sometimes to, to me. I mean, we just did a survey where we were, we were looking at um, how our users... Uh, listening habits have changed over time. And one thing that dropped out of it that really stunned me was that, you know, something like 20% of our users um, who responded to that survey were um, were thinking about already automatically scrubbing all their listens to Facebook. You know, not necessarily doing it yet, but thinking about doing it. And that was a much higher figure than I figured it would be, right? Given the penetration of that and those new open graph actions. So I, I, I'm a big believer in surveying. Short answer. Interesting. 
another question? Yeah. Uh, funding. Top three tips to get money. Thank you. I was going to say something about that. Who wants to talk about funding? Everyone's favorite topic. Sure, I'll jump in on this one. Um, well, I mean, it's sort of a synthesis of everything we've talked about here today, right? I mean, build a great product, you know, get yourself a, a you know, rabid user base, even if it's an early, you know, beta user base, private or public. Um, understand that you've got a big addressable market out there, that there is a monetization scheme that makes sense. Leverage all of the different PR tactics, get the press involved. I mean, you know, I would agree back to the press issue that, you know, getting written up in TechCrunch or Mashable um, is not maybe the first most direct way to grow user base, but it's really good as sort of validation. Um, you know, the good press coverage is very effective in, in moving young companies across little tipping points uh, from not funded to funded, from, you know, from public beta to, you know, to public launch. Uh, the press is really good at that. So it's, it's a synthesis of, of all of this. Have, you know, an advisory board that, uh, you know, has some smart people on it that understand your product, that understand the industry, that have connections to investors. Um, get, a good, uh, get a good emerging companies lawyer. <laughs> See me after class. I think it's just, I mean, I kind of get really goes back just making an awesome product, to be honest. Um, you know, I think that, you know, that's what the, the best VCs are looking at anyway. Um, I think the, my, my general advice around fundraising would just be, like, make sure you're working with individuals as high caliber as you'd hire for your team. Um, just be really ruthless about that, because I think that um, we, were, we were really lucky. We started out with Y Combinator, so I kind of... Um, saw what an amazing investors could look like firsthand right from the outset of Songkick and have tried to make sure I work with people of the same caliber ever since. But I've seen I've seen friends and other founders who've had investors who've been, you know, net destructive rather than net constructive. So I think just be really, really smart about who you pick as your partners and think about it like you're adding someone new to your team. The other thing to think about is like what stage of funding are you talking about? Because at the very beginning, like using Songkick example, like Ian could go into a room and be like, we want to get more people to live shows every year and like sell this huge dream of doing that and we'll get funded off of that dream because no one knows if it's going to work or not. But it's so early, you don't need a lot of money. Your company doesn't have a huge valuation. Two years later, when he goes back for more money and he says the same thing, they have to say, where's the data to support if that's working or not? And if it does work, what's the revenue model behind? And then it becomes a lot more analytical and like you have to actually prove that you're actually doing something that's working. So, but at that early stage, having having a clear idea of what you want to accomplish and then, you know, a, a big vision behind it with the idea that there is revenue down the line is really important. I just want to echo what, what Ian said, strategic investors, people who want to put skin in the game, but also want to see that money grow. You know, that I think is, is probably the most important lesson we've learned. And can help the money grow. Yeah, exactly. So I have something to add. So I'm just getting started with our funding round for my unannounced startup my advice that i'm learning as I, on the fly is numbers 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 even if you're really early on as many numbers as you can stats numbers uh whatever you can collect and the numbers that can help justify the the valuations you're talking about um the returns you're talking about think of the numbers um from the investor perspective not just from your own and maybe I'll just, I'll just add one more note on that because I know everybody at some point is going to want to think about this. You have to understand which type 
what type of investor you're dealing with. If you're talking about a venture investor or any sort of institutional investor who's managing somebody else's money, then numbers is critical. Great product goes without saying. Great team, probably the number one thing. Investors invest in people more than anything else. But with those boxes checked, you've got to be able to paint the picture of what the venture investors will call the total addressable market. What's the market out there? What fraction of that market can you realistically be expected to achieve You know, based on barriers to entry and the competitive landscape? If you're talking about angel investors, then they tend a little bit more to be bought in on the product or the experience or from an affinity perspective. They're investing their own money. They're not quite as ruthless on projections and spreadsheet um, you know, mathematics, and they really can be a little bit more emotionally uh, ready to invest. So it's, under, it's important to understand who you're pitching to. I'm going to put myself out there and say that any investor that spends more time on your spreadsheet than your products is not the right investor for you. Um, Maybe so. All right, one more, two more questions quickly. Hi, uh, Russ Hardy here from Von Church. Um, this kind of piggybacks off what Ian just said, but once you guys actually have that funding in place and you need to have that rapid expansion, how are you guys building out your team and um, what have you seen that's been really successful? Because I know that you said talent was so important to you. Quick answers, please. Uh, it's a total ball ache. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think um, it's really hard. Uh, I, I, I think... Uh, you know, just remember that as you're going through it. Um, that, that it we all experienced that. I mean, we've done something pretty cool in London. I'd, I, I wonder if anyone could replicate over here. But we basically realized that we were one of the largest startups in London now. We knew a lot of their startups. We knew a lot of, there were a lot of developers who wanted to work at startups. And we created this event called the uh, Milk Roundabout, where basically startups and, uh, and founders will all come and kind of, uh, and potential engineers or whoever will come and meet each other. And we, I think something like 400 people got hired on the first event we threw that way. Um, I, I, maybe the value is different just because there's like more, 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 more jobs open than people to fill them. Um, but uh, but if you if you're in any sort of startup uh, environment other than San Francisco, that might be a, that might be something worth exploring. I just say, keep your ears open to people who are really passionate about what you're doing, because I feel like the bringing people on who are just obsessed with your idea is the best thing you can do, yeah. and you can you can figure out a lot of other stuff later. Alrighty, all right. Um, I have one last question for the panel before we go um, to wrap things up. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. You get one sentence to answer this question. It is um, your parting piece of wisdom and advice to the entrepreneurs in the room. And we're going to start with Eric. Yes. Um, parting advice is, you know, first of all, be passionate. Try to build something that nobody else is building. Don't put yourself in a I'm better than position. Put yourself in a position that I'm different than everybody else. And from there, I think that you'll have a, a great opportunity. We'll count that as one long run-on sentence. That's what lawyers do. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't be so, don't be, uh, don't, don't hold ideas so valuable. You know, they're slippery fish, and sometimes they need to be slippery. You know, let, be, be, That's get comfortable letting them go. One sentence. <laughs> Try and do something world-changing that really matters to you. I would say be patient because it takes a lot longer than you think it will, but it's the most fun thing you'll ever do. All right, give a, hopefully give a round of applause to our amazing panelists.
How can they find you, by the way? What's your Twitter handles, or what's the best way to find if they want to find you? Uh, I'm at Mulligan on Twitter. I'm uh, at Soundboy. At Cantora Records. At Eric Ferraro. At Bed Parn, thank you very much. Thanks, Have guys. a great rest of the day. <laughs>